is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. And our next This Day in History is the story of a man who's been vilified by many as a robber baron, and worse, you know his name, you've certainly heard of his company, and you may think you know his story. But on this day in history, he was born on April 17, 1837, and this is the rest of the story. It was the 1800s, and in just 35 short years, America had grown into one of the most powerful countries on the planet, fueled by a group of visionaries who were building a better future. Cornelius Vanderbilt stopped at nothing to connect the nation via railroads. John D. Rockefeller lit homes from coast to coast, cheaply and safely with his standard oil. Under the strength of Andrew Carnegie's steel, cities expanded to the sky and bridges tightened the nation. And because of J.P. Morgan's business sense and vision, electricity began powering America. But what exactly did J.P. Morgan do? And why is it that we all know this man's name? You look at J.P. Morgan, the way he controlled the banking system. Basically, there's one man who just literally dominated the banking industry and essentially dominated financing in the country. JP was a banker, a very powerful one, who pulled the financial strings of wealthy men and was called on by presidents for what we now know as a bailout. He was a man who brought order to chaos, a man who made a fortune consolidating broken industries, buying out failing companies and returning them to profitability. Twice he was called on by American presidents to save the nation's economy. Both times he was criticized for wielding the power for the ability to do so. He was physically large with massive shoulders, piercing black eyes that seemed to look through people. He had an enormously disfigured purple nose because of a chronic skin condition called rosacea. As a result, all of his professional portraits were retouched Photographer Edward Steichen said, meeting his blazing dark eyes was like confronting the headlights of a freight train bearing down on you. There is so much to say about this man, but as you are about to see, America wasn't discovered, it was built. In 1837, the new steam engine was beginning to transform America, creating new and exciting opportunities. It was into this world of possibility that John Pierpont Morgan was born on April 17th in Hartford, Connecticut. The eldest son of Junius Spencer Morgan, the legendary founder of the world's first modern investment bank, and Juliet Pierpont Morgan, the daughter of a fiery preacher. Young Pierpont was greatly influenced by both his grandfathers. Every Sunday, he accompanied his grandfather, Joseph Morgan, to the local Episcopal church. Pierpont loved the services, especially when it came to singing the hymns. His other grandfather, the Reverend John Pierpont, was known for his passionate sermons on man's depravity and the love of Christ. Here's historian Ron Chernow. From his Pierpont grandfather, uh, uh, Morgan got a streak of uh, romanticism, a streak of uh, morality, and even a certain crusading streak that would be very important in his life. From the time he could count, Pierpont was taught that there was only one way to do business, the Morgan way. Simply put, invest wisely, 
avoid risk. Pierpont was a relatively solitary child who preferred reviewing his father's account books to outdoor sports. I will return tonight. See that these accounts balance by then. From a very young age, Junius had Pierpont working his books and imagining a bright future for himself. Go ahead, open it. Now pick it up. Feel the weight. You know what that is? That's what it feels like to hold a million dollars. Now, learn to earn it yourself. Pierpont's father noticed his son's abilities and over the years groomed him for a career in business. He raised his son Pierpont with a great deal of love but also a great deal of discipline. Junius Spencer Morgan expected that his son would follow in his footsteps and succeed in uh, the business world. But illness plagued Pierpont and often kept him out of school. From the time that he was a boy, he really had two personalities. One was this very jolly, animated, high-spirited, outgoing boy with tremendous energy and health. But then he would suddenly get these fainting spells, and that uh, was accompanied by a personality that was more that of a brooding loner. Forced by illness to spend time alone, Pierpont perfected the game of solitaire, a game he played to relax when he felt tense or nervous. After his first year at college, Pierpont's father decided it was time for his 20-year-old son to begin his career and arranged for him to be given a job as a clerk in a Wall Street banking firm. He worked hard, was orderly and absolutely methodical, and he could add numbers with lightning speed. Here's historian H.W. Brands. J.P. Morgan understood the game and at some point he realized that as successful as his father had been, he could become even more successful. At this time, Pierpont was introduced to a young lady named Amelia Sturgis, or Mimi, and they began dating. Soon Pierpont was sent to New Orleans, where he stumbled upon a business opportunity that he couldn't resist. A local sea captain was stuck with a shipload of coffee and no buyer. Immediate action was required or the coffee would spoil. Using the firm's money, Pierpont purchased the coffee and managed to turn a tidy little profit in the process. In New York, the partners at the bank weren't impressed. They were angry and thought the venture was risky. But Morgan believed that fortune smiles on those who act fast, and he believed his instincts about people would always make him a winner. He said the real risk was that he had misjudged the character of the captain and that the captain would have lied to him. And this is sort of the, the quintessential issue of Morgan, that he was able to look at people and immediately make a judgment of their character and of their integrity and one of his greatest strengths. And that is a real talent. When we come back, more of this exceptional life, a misunderstood life, a misrepresented life. The Life of J.P. Morgan.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This day in history brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College. More about Hillsdale in the next segment. But let's continue with this remarkable story about a misunderstood and amazing American life story, the life of J.P. Morgan. Then, during the summer of 1861... Three years after they had met, Mimi was diagnosed with tuberculosis, almost always fatal in the 19th century. Pierpont was devastated. Immediately, he took control of the situation. He proposed to Mimi, promising her that he'd help find a cure. He married her in the family house in New York. In fact, he had to carry her downstairs for the ceremony. Pierpont immediately took Mimi to Algiers for their honeymoon. He thought the tropical climate might save her. When Mimi's condition worsened, he brought in the best specialists to attend to her. But his efforts were in vain. Four months after their marriage, on February 17, 1862, Mimi died in Pierpont's arms. Here's an extraordinary outpouring of somebody trying to control life in some way. Uh, It was a terrible loss for him, and he failed. But he knew what he was getting into, oddly enough. He was daring, and almost he was daring death in some sort of dramatic way, and attempting to control it. The ordered, controlled life that Pierpont had made for himself was turned upside down. He returned to New York a changed man. The loss was so powerful that, in a way, it forced him to keep his genuinely emotional nature under tight control. Pierpont immersed himself in his business. He also remembered the comfort he received while attending church as a young boy. He joined St. George's Church in Manhattan and became an active member. As he continued to grieve for Mimi, the church provided a type of redemption that Pierpont didn't expect. It was there where he met the young, beautiful Fanny Tracy. She was at first put off by Pierpont's gruff demeanor, but soon she warmed to his affections. After a year-long courtship, Pierpont and Fanny were married at St. George's Church on May 31, 1865. They had three daughters and one son. Pierpont's prospects were bright. At 33, he had a beautiful family, a yacht, two homes, and was earning more than $75,000 a year a huge amount in a time when $2,000 was a comfortable living. Then, like the discovery of fire and the invention of the wheel, Morgan envisioned electric light revolutionizing the world. Morgan hired Thomas Edison, a telegraph boy turned inventor, to install electricity at his Manhattan mansion on 219 Madison Avenue, the first electrically lit home in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, behold the miracle of modern science. The gas lamp is dead. Long live the electric light. light you see is powered by electricity. 
Morgan's home became a lab for Edison's experiments. And when the time came to showcase electric light to a group of potential investors, Pierpont's father was not impressed. Well, father, what do you think? You disappoint me, Pierpont. I thought you knew better. This is the future. This is the stuff of carnivals and fairs. And you've been played for a fool. Though his father, Junius, saw electric light as a risky fad, Morgan invested everything in Edison. In the end, the fruits of Morgan's insight and investment gave birth to a company called General Electric. At this point, Morgan was running the biggest investment bank in America and consolidated both the electricity and railroad industries. He controlled 100,000 miles of railroad, half the country's mileage. But the American economy was fragile, and in 1893, the stock market crashed. The nation was thrown into a devastating depression. More than a hundred railroads declared bankruptcy, causing a domino effect that threatened other businesses and promised complete collapse of the economy. As had happened in the past, powerful men called upon Pierpont Morgan to bail them out. My we'll we this war. We need an Do you want to come to war? I've heard enough. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be an end to this war. The Morgan Bank will buy the West Shore and lease it to the Central. It'll also buy the Central stake in the South Pennsylvania in exchange for a share in other railroads. He excelled at taking warring parties who were destroying an industry and bringing peace on terms that was suitable to them, profitable to him, and which gave him leverage in the business itself. Anyone who knew anything about him realized that, like him or not, he got things done. Morgan reorganized the railroads by streamlining operations, and he was quickly able to reverse the downward spiral. But Pierpont wasn't finished. As a result of the Depression of 1893, the federal government's gold reserves had dropped to such an alarmingly low level that it looked as though the United States government would go broke. Fortunately, writes Phil Anschutz, Morgan considered the United States too big to fail. So Morgan devised a plan in which American and European bankers would invest gold directly in the government, saving it from collapse. But President Cleveland rejected Morgan's plan, and instead he backed the plan to raise the money by selling bonds directly to the public. But Morgan knew that the government didn't have time to sell bonds. Morgan quickly took a train to Washington, but was told that the president would not see him. Morgan's reply was swift. I have come down to Washington, D.C. to see the president, and I'm going to stay here until I see him. I think Pierpont Morgan certainly felt that he was the equal of the president of the United States. The next morning, word came from the White House that Morgan would be received. The president implemented Morgan's plan, and within days, the economy recovered. Here's Alan Greenspan. Morgan obviously was looking at the national interest in the context of his own, that is, saving the U.S. Treasury was an act of basic self-interest, but it was an act of nationalism. 
Morgan was hailed as a hero. He was praised for his patriotism and selflessness. But like all good deeds, Morgan's didn't go unpunished. Some accused him of manipulating the government and collecting a profit. People began to decide that Pierpont had too much power to be able to save the government of the United States. It's an extraordinary thing. And therefore, the only way that he could have done it is by having some sort of evil uh, capability. With the chaos, uncertainty, and personal demonization that often plagued Morgan's life, there was one source of stability, St. George's Church. The Reverend Rainsford said, sometimes I found him kneeling in prayer, or reading, or singing a hymn without organ and alone. No one but myself knew that the great master of men and things was worshiping. But this great master of men and things had another side. Morgan was known for enormous appetites. He consumed enormous quantities of port, sherry, and wine with dinner. He had breakfasts so large they could have killed a horse. His appetites extended to other areas as well. He was often seen in the company of women other than his wife. Pierpont once made a very telling comment that uh, there are always two reasons why a man does something, the good reason and the real reason. And he was always very respectful of Fanny. He was very discreet about the various escapades that he went through. And it just keeps getting more interesting, the life of J.P. Morgan. You've heard the name, you've heard the firm, but now you know the story behind the story, and there's more. It gets even better. I mean, that one man can almost save a country by himself is pretty remarkable. When we come back, more of the life of J.P. Morgan on this day in history, brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And by the way, so many of the voices you're hearing in this piece are from some of the best people in the world of finance and storytelling in U.S. history. Ron Chernow wrote the book, The House of Morgan. You've heard from him several times. You heard from Alan Greenspan, former Federal Reserve chairman, who talked about the fact that Morgan operated not only in his self-interest, but in the national interest at the same time. He did both. And so now let's return to this remarkable life story. And as always, this Day in History segment is brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. Let's get back to the story. Morgan's passionate nature extended to his business enterprises. 
In 1901, he undertook the largest business transaction in modern history, the purchase of Carnegie Steel. Morgan knew he couldn't negotiate directly with Andrew Carnegie. He needed another way in. So he set up a meeting with Carnegie's right-hand man, Charles Schwab. How long have you worked for Carnegie? Over 15 years. I guess he'd hate it if you left. No one is indispensable. You've doubled profits at Carnegie Steel every year for the past five years. Times have been good. Carnegie's a very easy boss. What if he were your own boss? Of what? I am going to buy Carnegie Steel. And you are going to be president of the world's largest company. With all due respect, Mr. Morgan, Carnegie would kill your idea at birth. Carnegie would never sell. Everyone has their price. You just have to find out what it is. Carnegie Steel was the crown jewel in the Morgan Empire. When asked to name his price, Andrew Carnegie jotted down a figure on the back of an envelope. Carnegie wasn't going to do any price haggling with Morgan. Carnegie writes down $480 million on a piece of paper. It's the equivalent of $400 billion today, more than Gates and Buffett together. Carnegie dared J.P. Morgan to buy him out for an outrageous price, a sum that is higher than the entire budget of the U.S. federal government. Schwab returned to Morgan. I have a price. Have Carnegie come and meet me. Tell him the answer is yes. Morgan and Carnegie solidified the deal. I believe that that is the earliest in the day that I've ever drunk champagne. Congratulations, Carnegie. You're now the richest man in the world. Would you have said yes, Morgan? If I'd asked for a hundred million more. Goodbye, Carnegie. The deal was closed without lawyers and without a written contract. The agreement gave Carnegie a personal net worth of over $310 billion in today's money. The largest private fortune the modern world has ever seen. With Carnegie Steel under his belt, Morgan formed the United States Steel Corporation in March of 1901. Stock was valued at $1,400,000,000. Morgan had created the world's first billion-dollar corporation, but his enormous power now brought public scrutiny. After his creation of U.S. Steel, he controlled somewhere between 60 and 70% of the American steel industry. He controlled a third of American railways at a time when railway stocks comprised 60% of all the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Morgan had reached the pinnacle of his power, and it looked as if nothing could stop him. This is William Jennings Bryan at a recent Democrat rally. He's a prohibitionist and a devout Presbyterian. According to him, Darwin's theory of evolution is a pack of lies. 
He's an enemy of the gold standard and an enemy of big business. It is certain that he will win the Democratic nomination. What do you think? The Republican Party has a good candidate. No. We have to buy our own president. At the turn of the century, Morgan, along with John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, joined forces in launching the business-friendly William McKinley into the position of President of the United States. But on September 6th, 1901, McKinley was cut down by an assassin's bullet and died eight days later. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt was sworn in as the next president. Theodore Roosevelt, raise your right hand. Do you, Theodore Roosevelt, solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and to the best of your ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And thus I swear. Now, let's get started. Morgan soon confronted a man whose power equaled his own. He was an unknown entity, but to the extent that people in New York knew his record, they also knew that he was something of a loose cannon who had gone on record as criticizing businessmen. Roosevelt was determined to break up the big, powerful businesses called trusts, and he used Morgan's railroad company to set the example. Morgan demanded to see the president, so he stormed down from New York to Washington, went into the White House, and he said, I don't understand. He said, if we've got a problem, send your man to my man and they'll fix it up. And Roosevelt said, this is exactly the problem with Morgan. He acts as though I'm just a rival boss or something. And Morgan, who thought that he could manipulate Roosevelt, discovered that Roosevelt could not be manipulated at all. Morgan was not impressed. Pierpont Morgan resented Theodore Roosevelt, finally. And once when he heard that Roosevelt was going off to Africa on a safari, Morgan said, good, I hope the first lion that meets him does his duty. And what a story, a showdown between, well, Roosevelt and J.P. Morgan. It doesn't get better than this, folks. And by the way, that's what we try and do here each and every day, take you away from the politics of the day, from the screaming, the shouting, and the stuff that just won't matter tomorrow, let alone next year. We don't sugarcoat history here, as you can tell. We tell it all, warts and all. Roosevelt didn't want to just bust trust, folks. He wanted to make a name for himself. And as always, our source material, Out Where the West Begins, by Phil Anschutz, and he had a chapter on J.P. Morgan that was terrific. And also The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow. And Ron also has written a couple of other pretty good ones. Alexander Hamilton, upon, upon which a play was based. And of course, his terrific biography of George Washington. And when we come back, more on the life of J.P. Morgan, who was born on this day in history in 1837. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can study history, the Constitution, the arts, all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific 
online courses, and to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free podcasts. Send the link to friends, too. And if you're just driving about or taking a long drive with a family, there's nothing better to do than just download your favorite episodes of history and everything else we do. When we come back, the life of J.P. Morgan, his story, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and our This Day in History segment is focused on one life for the hour. We don't do many hours on business people, but we're going to be doing more because just as George Washington deserves an hour, just as John Wooden does, just as Martin Luther King does, what we haven't done enough of in this country is celebrate our great business people who changed the country. And all of these guys are flawed characters, just like all of our founding fathers, just like Martin Luther King, just like Robert Plant that we did an hour. We don't brush up these people's lives. Why bother? They're not interesting if we do it. And great writers don't do it anyway, and that's what makes Chernow so brilliant. You're reading The Life of Alexander Hamilton, and it is messy. And boy, one minute you love him, and the next minute you're going, what a jerk. And then you come back to loving him, and then you come back to hating him, and you see this incredible talent. And you walk away saying, wow, what this country would have been like without these men. Like them, don't like them. What a story. And one of the books that we've been relying on here at Our American Stories is one called Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz. And we've already done the life of Levi Strauss, the life of Adolf Coors. Again, you know these names, Coors Brewing, Levi Jeans. Who were the men who brought us these things that we use, drink, enjoy every day? And under finance, he spent some time on the life of J.P. Morgan. And, of course, we also have The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow, a couple of great documentaries that are out there, and then just searching for other source material. Greg, Alex, Jesse, John, the whole team here works to bring you these hours, and they just do a terrific, terrific job. And all of this is brought to you, of course, by Hillsdale College. And now we return to the final installment of this life, this rich life, this complicated life, and this showdown between two giants, J.P. Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt. Morgan was prosecuted for breach of the Antitrust Act and lost in a 5-4 to four decision at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1903. Then, in the fall of 1907, another panic hit Wall Street. One of America's largest trust companies had collapsed, sending shockwaves throughout the American economy. Immediate action was required, and President Roosevelt's advisors knew that there was only one man with the power to save the nation. 
Morgan's reach was very broad in American industry. He becomes the most respected, reliable, and trusted figure, not only because of the power and wealth that he wields, but just because of his character. The president who had prosecuted Morgan for having too much control was about to hand that control back to him. And Morgan had a plan. His answer was to get the larger trusts to invest money in their weaker competitors. This wasn't easy, but Morgan's power of persuasion was unmatched. Morgan was a very flamboyant and almost operatic figure, and like all great actors, he liked to have great stage sets for his big set pieces. He found that very often, in order to um, get a business deal, it helped to isolate people and also to set a deadline. He gathered the trust company presidents in his library. He cast a long, penetrating look at each man and launched into a plea for cooperation that at times sounded more like a command. Morgan then walked to the front door of the library, locked it, and retired to another room to play solitaire. The nation's most influential men were locked in Morgan's library and weren't allowed out until they came up with a solution and he would be sitting at the desk and he would be flipping his cards and uh, one of his lieutenants would come in and say uh, Mr. Morgan the, the bank presidents have proposed a 10 million dollar loan and he would be flipping his cards and he would look up and he would say it's not enough flip his cards again in the early hours of the morning Morgan marched into the library the men still had not come to a solution but Morgan had. He pushed a contract and a pen into the hand of the leader of the trust company presidents. He pointed to the contract and said, here's the place and here's the pen. Completely exhausted and beaten down, the president signed and the others followed. The men agreed to contribute to the $25 million pool to save the weakened trusts. Within days, the economy rallied. Vowing to never let it happen again, and realizing that in a future crisis there was unlikely to be another Morgan, the banking and political leaders devised a plan that resulted in the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. Here's Ron Chernow. Prior to 1913, we did not have a Federal Reserve Board in this country. We had J. Pierpont Morgan. He was like a one-man central bank. On the morning of April 15, 1912, Morgan was scheduled to travel on the ill-fated maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic, but canceled at the last minute. The White Star Line, which operated Titanic, was part of Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company, and Morgan was to have his own private suite and promenade deck on the ship. In response to the sinking of Titanic, Morgan purportedly said, Monetary losses amount to nothing in life. It is the loss of life that counts. It is that frightful death. On March 31st, 1913, he died in his sleep in a hotel in Rome, just short of his 76th birthday. Thousands of people flocked to St. George's Church for his funeral. As a final tribute, flags on Wall Street flew at half-staff and in an honor usually reserved for heads of state, 
the stock market closed for two hours when his body passed through New York City, one of the few times in its history. Morgan's son Jack took control of J.P. Morgan & Company. The firm still exists today. Morgan loved his nation, saving it from economic collapse on more than one occasion. He served on the board of New York's St. Luke's Hospital and volunteered his time and skills to the YMCA. He helped found the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Natural History. He underwrote three new buildings for Harvard Medical School. J.P. Morgan was a patriot who believed in American exceptionalism. As he optimistically remarked, the man who is a bear on the future of the United States will always go broke. Historian H.W. Brands concluded, he knew railroads as well as William Vanderbilt, Steele as well as Andrew Carnegie, and government finance better than President Grover Cleveland. After Morgan's death, his once bitter rival Theodore Roosevelt summed up Morgan's life. Mr. Morgan was politically opposed to me, yet whenever I was brought into contact with him, I was struck not only by his very great power, but by his sincerity and truthfulness. J. Pierpont Morgan used his integrity and his influence to transform Wall Street at the turn of the century. In the process, he changed America forever. And that is just one great piece of storytelling. And again, go to our website on our This Day in History. And again, we want to focus on the businessmen of this country. Too often it's the sport figures or the entertainment figures or the politicians or the generals. But this space of what America would look like without some of these men. And again, like them or not, good guys, bad guys, what did they do? What made them great? And what did they do for their country? What was their contribution in the end? We did an hour on Ray Kroc, and this guy brought us McDonald's, Levi Strauss, the jeans, Hendrick Meyer, the store, same with Sam Walton, Walmart, Adolph Coors. Well, these are the things that we love in life, too, and we're going to do much more on Mr. Ranchitz's book, Out Where the West Begins, and much more in the area of American business and how businessmen built this great country. As always, all of this is brought to us by Hillsdale College the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. They're great online courses. And my goodness, the Constitution 101 is worth it by itself. Ten hours of just superb teaching by one of the best faculties in this country. It's available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And Our American Stories, Best Day, This Days in History, are available at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And just imagine that. He purchased that part in the story where he purchased Carnegie Steel, and he gave him the equivalent of $310 billion and told him to go take a walk, but overnight created a company with a stock value of $1.4 billion. And you can like that. You cannot like that. But that is the backbone, American finance is the backbone of this country. Without financial men, without great banks, like them, not like them. My goodness, we're doing a lot of storytelling about Dodd-Frank because there are some excesses. But let me tell you, without great financial 
financial prowess. Without our markets, without the SEC, America is not America. And I also love what was said about this man and what this man said about our country. The man who is a bear on America's future will always go broke. And for all the naysayers who have always said our best days are behind us, nonsense, nonsense. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses on everything from economics to American history, and even to a terrific free C.S. Lewis course. Hillsdale.edu is where to go. And on this day in history, in 1790, Benjamin Franklin died in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Many of us know Franklin as one of our nation's founding fathers. But as you'll see in this next hour, he shaped our culture even more than our government. To learn more about the leading American writer, inventor, media executive, scientist, and diplomat of his generation, we turn to Walter Isaacson, the author of Benjamin Franklin and American Life. Isaacson gave a great talk at the Free Library of Philadelphia, and we'll share some of the highlights from that talk. And to start, why did Isaacson choose to write about Benjamin Franklin in the first place? What shaped this man? The other founding fathers, you know, they're all up there in marble, carved in marble on a pedestal. This guy is flesh and blood, and uh, people say, gee, you know, he had a problem with his son, and his marriage was sort of, you know not always perfect, and so don't, don't you have problems with that? And you say, wait a minute, you know people like that? You know, we're all uh, flesh and blood humans, and at least this is the founder that you can relate to, and uh, especially when you're breathing the air of Philadelphia. Of course, he doesn't really start here. Uh, he starts in Boston, and um, as a wonderful self-taught kid, he was a tenth son of uh, somebody a candle maker from Boston, and his father was uh, thus going to make him the tithe to the Lord, send him to study for the ministry at Harvard. Uh, fortunately, perhaps, Benjamin Franklin was not exactly cut for the cloth. One day they were uh, salting away all the provisions uh, for the winter and putting them away, and young Benjamin Franklin said, why don't I say grace over him right now? We get it done with once and for all for the year. So his father realized it would be a darn waste of money to send him to Harvard. It's probably the best thing ever to happen to him. Uh, instead, he has to become self-taught. This is why he loves libraries, of course. His older brother was a printer. He gets apprenticed to his older brother. And so he gets to borrow overnight some of the books from the booksellers that they... Uh, print the books for, and there he is at age 12 and 13, 
you know, taking these books and trying to teach himself and remembering each one of them, you know, Plutarch's Lives, he reads, and Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and all those books that all of us were reading when we were 12 and 13 <laughs> years old. And he decides he's got to make himself a great writer, too, because he wants to be a writer. And what he does is he takes old copies of The Spectator, that great British magazine, and he reads the essays by Addison and Steele and takes notes on them and puts the notes aside and occasionally recreates the essay in poetry so he can increase his vocabulary and then finally tries to replicate the original essay from his notes or from the poetry and compare it with the original to see how well he did and to correct himself when he felt he hadn't been able to replicate the argument quite as well. And then he said, every now and then, though, I did feel that just in one or two particulars I was able not only to recreate the argument, but perhaps even improve it, which made me think I would be a tolerable writer. And again, the theme we hear over and over again here on Our American Stories, self-taught, just like the Wright brothers we learned from David McCullough. And Franklin, what a life. Walter Isaacson continues. Well, uh, he not only became a tolerable writer, but the best writer in America of his time, And the first writer in America really to have that wonderful, folksy, straightforward, pragmatic, practical, conversational style. Uh, Be that as it may, his brother, being an older brother, and there's the way older brothers are, uh, was jealous of him, did not want him to write for the newspaper. So young Ben Franklin, now about 15 or 16 years old, decides to create a pseudonym and secretly Uh, submit essays for the paper, very famously, of course, uh, disguising his handwriting, writing under the name of Silence Do Good. Now, this is a very, say, cheeky, uh, perhaps even, um, uh, let's say Randy or something, 15, 16-year-old kid who's never spent the night outside of Boston writing as if he's a widowed woman living in the countryside of Massachusetts. A great triumph of the imagination. A a widow who's being courted by a minister in the most ridiculous fashion. So you think, wow, this guy has a great imagination. But not only does he have a great imagination and a wonderful, spunky sense of humor, but each one of these Silence Do Get essays of this young kid has a real point to it. A point that helps create what America's all about. First essay, he talks about, or Silence Lugood talks about, how she has an aversion to tyranny, and any trampling of her rights makes her blood boil exceedingly. And it's that notion of liberty and freedom that's going to become part of the American character. And then, of course, since Boston's a theocracy at that point, you know, a Puritan-run commonwealth, the first great crusading against the notion of church and state being together instead of having a separation. And there's Silence Duguid poking fun at Governor Dudley for being a clergyman who goes into government and saying anybody who uh, uh, is first a clergyman can rob all your money that way and then take all your money in government. It's a worse form of hypocrisy, and that's why we have to end it. But, you, you know, and it's so delightful, but you have to read it carefully to see, oh, yes, we're creating a new nation here, even in this mind of this young 16-year-old a nation built on religious tolerance, on a separation of church and state, an aversion to tyranny, all of these things, which you'll be happy, those of you here in Philadelphia, to know was not exactly the way everybody in Boston felt. 
whether it be his brother or the ruling authorities in Boston who a couple times tried to shut down the newspaper. So finally, of course, Benjamin Franklin runs away to come down here to Market Street uh, eventually and uh, be a runaway apprentice trying to make his name as a leather apron shopkeeper here in Philadelphia. And when we come back, more from Walter Isaacson, the author of Benjamin Franklin, An American Life. Our This Day in History segment continues. Benjamin Franklin died on this day in history in 1790. This is Our American Stories. We continue with our This Day in History segment. Benjamin Franklin died in 1790 on This Day in History. And we left off with Walter Isaacson talking about Benjamin Franklin leaving Boston and heading to Philadelphia. Let's pick up from there. It's great that he comes here because it helps reinforce this core notion that I feel is at the heart of what Benjamin Franklin is about and why he's so relevant in a century, this century, in which the fight against religious intolerance and the fight for pluralism and uh, against fanaticism is the core fight of our century around the world and in all places where it's challenged. He comes to Philadelphia and it gets reinforced because here you have a city, a city of brotherly love, as the name is, implies, in which they're not, it's not just a Puritan theocracy, but they're Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and also Moravians and Jews and people of all faiths all working together. And he just thrives in that element because he becomes a little shopkeeper. He understands how to serve customers. He understands the tolerance, the notion of pragmatism, the notion of compromise, of even making a deal that comes from being a shopkeeper serving a diverse clientele. And that's what instills in him some of these great notions that he gives to us as a nation. And you take the very first newspaper. I mean, you know, here's a town of 10, 12,000 people, had two newspapers. He felt he wanted to start a third. Soon it has many newspapers, would that we had many newspapers in our big cities today. But that he believed in that voice, the many voices, the competing voices, the diversity of voices that came from a robust press. So he takes over a newspaper. And in one of his first editorials, somebody had complained about not liking something that had been in the paper. And he writes Apology for Printers, a great editorial, in which he says, basically, you're not going to like everything that's printed in this paper. But by the way, if printers only printed things that everybody liked, there'd be very little printed in this world today. Because people's opinions are as varied and as diverse as their faces. And those of us People like himself creating a new nation based on the free flow of information and the free discussion of ideas. He said, you know, we believe that when all sides are heard and with truth and falsity all have fair play, that the people are going to be smart enough 
and truth will triumph over falsity. And once again, it was that underlying tolerance and pragmatism that leads him to the notion of a raucous free press and a press that tries to allow the people, that believes in the people, that if the people have many voices, the people are smart enough to decide instead of having censors or gatekeepers telling them what they have to think. An abiding respect for we the people is what was there. And while Franklin deeply believed in the need for a free press and free speech, he always made decisions based on strong personal principles. And he tells a wonderful tale about how somebody tried to get him to print something uh, that he found too scurrilous and not true, but was going to give him a lot of money to print it. And so he said, I went home and I bought a little loaf of bread and made myself a gruel of uh, bread and water and just ate that for a day and slept on my greatcoat instead of sleeping on a bed, just slept on the floor on a coat. And I realized I didn't need the money that badly. I was never going to compromise my principles or do things just for money. And that that responsibility comes with the press as well. And those of us who are journalists or recovering journalists, whatever I am, uh, you know, need to remember that both the uh, duties and the responsibilities and the joy and the exuberance that comes from an open press in a society that allows the clash and the free flow of ideas that is so fundamental to our democracy. Once again, it's something that on these streets of Philadelphia, Franklin understood intuitively and helped endow to this nation. Speaking of principles, Franklin had tremendous confidence in the American people, especially what we would now call the middle class. And he set out to strengthen the virtues of American citizens. He also... Uh, created for himself because he really believed that the uh, middling people, the middle class people, were going to be the backbone of a new nation. That if he could get the tradesmen and the shopkeepers and the artisans of Philadelphia to uh, engage in self-improvement, to be a little bit better and more diligent, it would help create a stronger society. So he comes up with all of his virtues, the virtues he's going to teach himself and then try to have the other people in his group learn. And he makes a wonderful list of 12 virtues of industry and frugality and all the things you need to be a successful uh, shopkeeper and citizen. And he's very proud of it, and he works on it every week, marking down how he had done on each one of these virtues. Eventually putting it on a piece of slate, he said, because in his wonderful self-deprecating style, he loves to poke fun at himself. He said, I had to put it on a piece of slate because I was uh, making so many marks, and it was, you know, working through the paper of the notebook that he needed a slate where he could erase some of the marks and start clean again. But he finally gets it right and he gets these virtues and he's showing it around to his friends and one of his friends kindly informs him that he's left off a virtue that he might want to have and Franklin says, what's that? And the friend says, um, humility. Um, <laughs> perhaps you should add that one to your list. And Franklin, of course, adds humility to the list and says, I was never able to conquer this virtue. I was never able to master humility. But I was very good at the appearance of it. <laughs> I, was, I could fake it. I could feign humility. And, but here's the key part, with the appearance and the underlying reality, as is, at least in my mind, the theme of Franklin's life, joined together. And he said the appearance of humility and caring about uh, humility and showing humility was in many ways as important as the real thing. It caused you to listen to other people, to care about what they thought, to realize you may be fallible, to realize you may have to make compromise. Franklin's commitment to virtue, his love of good jokes, 
led to one of his great strengths, the ability to make us think and laugh at the same time. He also had a wonderful, as you can tell, sense of humor. And I think that humor also, in a way, comes from the humility and the sense of tolerance and everything else, because it was a special type of humor that became the American style of humor. It was a new type of humor in many ways. It was that folksy, sort of naive character, like Silence Do Good or later Poor Richard or many of the other pseudonyms he invented, folksy and naive and feigning a little bit of innocence, but with a sharp and wicked pen that's poking fun at the powerful and the pretensions of the elite and at the arrogance and stuff with a little self-deprecation thrown in. The type of humor you've seen in everything from Mark Twain to Will Rogers to the present that is very American because it gives a sense of community and tolerance and uh, that sort of good-natured poking at the powerful uh, that keeps American democracy so healthy. You see it in so many of his pieces, and he combines it with the notion of religious tolerance and everything else. Um, There's a witch trial at Mount Holly, which I love, a little tale he wrote. These are all kind of hoaxes that half the time people thought were real stories, and only a few years later or many years later realized they were hoaxes by Benjamin Franklin. But the witch trial at Mount Holly is poking fun at religious intolerance, where they decide to see if some people are witches, uh, they're accused, so they're going to dump them in the river. And uh, if they sink, it means they're actually innocent. But if they float, uh, it means they're witches, which seemed like a no-win proposition. <laughs> but those who are accused said, well, that's fine, but you have to throw the accusers in as well and see. So they throw them all into the river, and most of them uh, float. And... Um, Franklin, or his narrator says, with the wry wit of Franklin, some of the people kind of figured out that maybe it just meant that human beings naturally float. But others weren't so sure, and they decided they'd try it again in the summertime when they could do it without clothes to see who floated and who sang. And even poking fun at the double standards that happened at the time. Benjamin Franklin was the father of an illegitimate child, uh, William, a very interesting character, who, uh, as I said, was the a uh, guy who became somewhat aristocratic, pretentious, loyalist to the crown, and Franklin was uh, sort of half-aiming the first part of his autobiography at him. But uh, he does a story called The Trial of Polly Baker, who also had had illegitimate children, five illegitimate children, but she's on trial and she's going to put in jail for it. And she kind of mentions, well, you know, I believe the promises that were made to me, and uh, there are five men who... Um, Uh, And they're not on trial, and somehow I am on trial. And she gives a stirring defense of what she has done to help the citizen and how she was the one who was misled and why is she the one on trial instead of the man. And at a certain point, one of the magistrates comes down from the bench with great emotion and proposes marriage to her, and they get married. (laughs) One suspects that he may have been one of the five. I'm not quite sure. but, uh, But it's just this wonderful way of poking fun at some of the pretensions of the elite while also establishing a new feel for what American democracy would be about. And what great storytelling. Walter Isaacson, one of America's best biographers, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and of course, you're listening to him talk about perhaps his favorite, Benjamin Franklin. More on our This Day in History series and segment after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with Walter Isaacson, the subject, Benjamin Franklin, and the book, Benjamin Franklin, An American Life. Again, a talk Isaacson gave back when he was plugging this book at the Free Library of Philadelphia. And Isaacson continued to talk about the rise of Franklin as a writer. And we can't talk about that without talking about Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. The best of all, of course, is the Poor Richard's Almanacs. Uh, which he printed in his shop right here in Market Street. And Poor Richards is one of his uh, pseudonyms and great cutouts. And the great thing about Poor Richards is basically his philosophy was doing well by doing good, meaning he can make a buck by doing good for his fellow uh, citizens. He taught a whole lot of maxims, you know, the early to bed, early to rise, which I'm not sure Franklin fully obeyed most of his life, and a penny saved is a penny earned. It was partly there to help people the shopkeepers and tradesmen, become better citizens. But as poor Richard says in the very first preface of the very first almanac in 1733, he wasn't just doing it to be helpful. He was doing it because his wife threatened to kick him out of the house and throw away all of his instruments and stuff if he didn't make some money at it eventually. And so he's doing it to make a buck as well. And uh, you see that uh, great style of Franklin uh, poking fun at himself, but also being an entrepreneur who believes you can be an entrepreneur, but also help your community and be a good civic citizen. With all of his wit, industry, and business sense, Franklin built what we would now call a media empire. Eventually he retires or semi-retires from the print trade. He's franchised his shops up and down the coast from Boston to Barbados, uh, created a great media empire that would be the envy of the media empires I used to work for and others in which he had both wonderful printing facilities and then franchises up and down the coast and then the content, be it Paul Richard's Almanac or his own writings of the newspapers and then the books that he imported to publish and then eventually, being a great media tycoon, the distribution system, which he wanted to help control, so he helps create the U.S. Postal Service uh, for that. Uh, once again, a case of doing well by doing good, but he takes some time off after a while uh, from these partnerships because he wants to turn himself into a great citizen and civic leader and do well for his community. He writes his sister a wonderful letter describing his motivations. He say, and he ends by saying, uh, I'd rather it be said of me that I lived usefully than that he died rich. And uh, what he does is he forms many of the groups, including the library we're sitting here and the others I talked about, uh, that help Philadelphia and help America uh, become better communities, better towns, and uh, a greater country. And uh, among those was the Junto, a great little discussion club, which is supposed to help, you know, the tradesmen of Philadelphia discuss the important issues of the time, the timeless values, uh, and how they apply to the problems they were seeing at their time. The Junto, by the way, was a club for mutual improvement, established so that the members could debate questions of morals, politics, natural philosophy, and business. It was also a charitable organization and created a subscription public library. Among its original members were printers, surveyors, a cabinet maker, a clerk, and a bartender. For Franklin, this intense interest in learning and mutual improvement was part of his relationship with God. He connected that to his uh, rather amorphous but deep belief in God 
I think when he founded the libraries here, he had a wonderful slogan, which was basically to pour forth benefits for the common good is divine. And that helped him figure out that uh, even though he didn't know which particular religion or which particular church here to join, there was one particular creed he felt all churches should have, which is the best way to serve God is to do well by your community and your fellow citizens. Now, that also came in the founding of the University of Pennsylvania. And I love the difference uh, of the way he founded the University of Pennsylvania, and to compare it to his friend and protege, Thomas Jefferson, who later founded the University of Virginia. But Jefferson felt that the point of a university like that would be to skim a new aristocracy, to create, in his version of a meritocracy, to take the most talented people and remove them from the rest of society, elevate them, skim them off a bit, and make them into this new aristocracy. Not Franklin. He was the most democratic. He had the best fingertip feel for democracy of all the founders. And for the University of Pennsylvania, it was to help any aspiring person, any inspiring person who was going to be diligent and work hard, whatever their station in life, to help improve them to become better citizens. And he wasn't trying to create a new class society or a new elite, but just a better society all around in which people from all walks of life uh, got a very practical and solid a chance to be better citizens. As much as he'd accomplished in America, Benjamin Franklin had much more to do overseas. In the years leading up to the American Revolution, Franklin did what he could to prevent war, but without compromising principles. He finally goes over to England after that to uh, help. Uh, he was a man of great uh, hope for the British Empire, and he basically felt all problems could be solved by looking at the underlying values and saying, we can find common ground. And he mistakenly thought that he could find a common ground that would save the British Empire and keep what he called the fine, noble China vase from shattering apart, thus never being able to be put back together. He finally ended up using the humor again, those hoaxes, just like when he was silenced do good. One of my favorites is uh, a newspaper article he wrote. It was after England had imposed a lot of taxes and tariffs and they had justified the taxes and tariffs on the colonies for a variety of reasons, uh, including the fact that they had colonized you know, this part of the world and they had protected against wars and they had the right to impose the taxes. So he wrote the edict from the king of Prussia, which appeared in the papers. It was an edict from Prussia in which Prussia announced it was imposing a tax and tariffs on the English because they had colonized England and protected in certain wars. And he was at a country home at that point in England, and somebody comes running down with the paper and says, look at this, and they're reading this thing aloud with great outrage that the king of Prussia would have put out such an edict. And they look at Franklin in the corner smiling, and they realize that uh, once again, his pen, his sense of humor, his way of humor, using humor to make a point had been so successful. Uh, he, of course... Uh, finally gets humiliated over and over again in his attempt, so he comes back to America in 1775 and casts his lot in favor of the revolution. Having chosen sides, Franklin channeled his many talents into supporting the American Revolution, for example, by helping to articulate our nation's principles. The three most important people on the committee were Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and of course Benjamin Franklin to write the Declaration. And on Market Street here, using a little lap desk that he invented, 
Jefferson writes the very first draft, the initial draft of what they're going to do, and he sends it to Franklin a few doors away. And in this beautiful flowery letter, says, well, the good Dr. Franklin and all of his infinite wisdom, please peruse this document and any improvements he could possibly make and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, boy, people are much nicer to editors back then. <laughs> and Franklin sees that famous second paragraph, and Jefferson has written, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Franklin takes his printer's pen, that wonderful black printer's pen with the heavy backslashes that a printer uses, and crosses out the last few words, and changes it to, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And he wants to make the point that it's the consent of the governed from which these rights emerge, their natural rights, rights of reason and rationality, not just rights endowed by religion. Indeed, and when we come back, our last segment, The Life of Benjamin Franklin, as told by Walter Isaacson at the Free Library of Philadelphia. More after these messages. Turn to the conclusion of our hour-long celebration of the life of Benjamin Franklin, who died on this day in history in 1790. And we've been listening to Walter Isaacson, his book, Benjamin Franklin, An American Life, is just so good. Pick it up, read it now. It's old, but if you haven't read it, it's brand new. And by the way, our This Days in Histories always are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our free and terrific podcasts. We last left off with Benjamin Franklin having helped draft the Declaration of Independence. And then, again, he heads overseas in service to his country. Later that year, he goes to France to get France in on our side in the Revolution. Uh... I think he was the last diplomat who really knew how to handle the French. Um, and he did it masterfully. First of all, he played a wonderful balance of power. He's a realist. He played a balance of power game. A balance of power game that would have dazzled a Metternich or a Kissinger, playing off the interests of Spain, the Netherlands, France, the Bourbon Pact countries, and England, making it clear to Verjean, who was then the foreign minister, and King Louis XVI, why it was in France's interest to be on the side. But more importantly, he realized, and this is a key to what America's all about in its role in the world, and the role we're going to have to play in this new century, that the strength of America has been, always will be, and even when it won the Cold War, its strength was the appeal of its ideals, not just the force of its interests and power. That people like the ideals of America, the ideals of liberty, aversion to tyranny, the things that Franklin stood for, and he, he promotes these throughout France. He prints the Declaration of Independence, all the state constitutions on this private press that he creates in, his, uh, in Paris. Uh, 
because he wants to inspire the French people with the ideals of equality and liberty that are bubbling up so famously in France at the time. And he becomes the most famous uh, American ever, in, well, with all due respect to Jerry Lewis, ever in <laughs> France. And um, people are paying to see him go through the streets. They're paying for good spots on the street when he's being brought to the academy to uh, hug Voltaire. And Franklin's no fool. He's always worrying about his image, whether it be about humility or industriousness, rolling the carts of paper through the streets of Philadelphia, or his um, generosity and, uh, uh, when he first arrives here. Uh, he knows that the French sort of love Rousseau and the idea of the natural man. So here's a guy, Benjamin Franklin, who really has lived in Philadelphia and London his whole life, on Market Street and Craven Street, for that matter, two well-named streets. But he pretends to be the great backwoodsman as well, and he wears the fur cap and the frock coat from the backwoods. And, the sort of, and even when he goes into the salons or whatever, none of the wigs or fancy ceremonial swords, he's wearing his fur cap and people are touching it and uh, thinking of him as a natural frontier philosopher. And they create all these medallions and portraits of Franklin, and it just became a thing in Paris, everybody wearing Franklin medallions. It so annoyed King Louis XVI and amused him that when one of the countesses who was part of the court of the king at the time kept on and on about Franklin and wearing the medallion, the king actually had a chamber pot made with an embossed Franklin medallion at the bottom for her. And that's the thing about Franklin. What a showman. A real showman. And, you know, he wasn't just having fun over there in France. He was getting the French to support us against the Brits, and that was a big deal. Something like 90% of our gunpowder came from the French. After fulfilling his diplomatic mission overseas, Franklin began another mission of sorts back here at home, and that had to do with the development of the U.S. Constitution. And if you get a chance, go to Philadelphia, bring the family. The tour there around the Liberty Bell and Assembly Hall and the Constitution Center, it's just remarkable. And it's well worth a day or two of your life and your family's life to go there. And you'll learn what a, what a remarkable part of the Constitutionist development and the role that Franklin and George Washington played in it. Both of them had such, such big roles. I wanted to give you a quick quote from Franklin. He said this uh, in a speech to the Constitutional Convention. I've lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what beautiful writing. By the way, Franklin saw to the core one morally troubling part of the Constitution. He saw it clearly more than almost any other person on the convention floor. There was, however, at that convention and in Franklin's lifetime, one issue that could not be solved by compromise. 
And it was the issue that they failed to solve. It was the issue of slavery. And uh, Franklin had fought tyranny his whole life. But he had made many errors in his life, which is why I like him. He was the flesh and blood founder, as I said, the one who made errors, admitted to those errors, and tried to rectify them, as he said. So in his 80s, after the convention, he decides to become president of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery, because he had owned two slaves once in his life, and he had allowed his newspaper to carry advertisements for slavery. And he realized that this was a blot in a lifetime spent fighting tyranny. So he becomes president of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery and does a remarkable, brilliant, wonderful petition and speech talking to Congress and everybody else about the ideals of America and how incompatible and uncompromisingly incompatible they were with slavery and how slavery had to be abolished and all slaves freed, etc. A congressman from Georgia got up right afterwards after this thing is published and gave this speech attacking Franklin, talking about uh, how the economy would be in trouble if he didn't have slavery, and how slavery was needed, and how the slaves who were here were better off, and that sort of thing. So from his deathbed, last thing, great thing he writes, lying in the deathbed here on Market Street, he writes yet again another wonderful hoax that for a while fooled people. And in the paper he publishes, he says that he discovered and this is just echoes of silence do good at age 16. Here he is in his 80s. Discovered a speech given 100 years earlier in the Divan of Algiers by the, one of the great legislators of Algeria, defending the need to continue the practice of enslaving white European Christians to work in Algeria. And it goes step by step through the arguments that had been made defending slavery in America. And was quite a sensation and to me, it was a fitting end to a life, begun as silence, do good, fighting against tyranny and all forms of trampling of our rights, making our blood boil exceedingly, to do that parody and hoax, uh, the speech of the divine of Algiers, on his deathbed. Walter Isaacson ended his talk about the life of Benjamin Franklin by telling one great story that sums up the sort of man Franklin really was and how he shaped the culture of our still young a distinctive nation. In his lifetime here in Philadelphia, he had contributed, if you look at his ledgers, to the building fund of each and every church in Philadelphia. And even at one point, he raised money for what was then called the New Hall, right next to what is now Independence Hall. And it was for itinerant preachers, preachers who wanted to come in and didn't have a pulpit. And in the, brochure, in the pamphlet, he writes, soliciting money for it, he says, even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send somebody here to preach Mohammed to us, we should give that person a pulpit, and he should have a place to speak, and we should listen. And then right before he dies, he's one of the largest, he's the top three donors uh, to the Mikveh Israel Synagogue, the building fund of the first synagogue in Philadelphia. So on the day he died, when they bring his coffin to the grave, uh, usually your minister marches with the coffin, all the ministers and preachers of all of Philadelphia and the rabbi of the Jews all walked arm in arm holding his coffin to the grave. And what a testimony. And what a thing to do, by the way. That is true religious tolerance. And did it without much fanfare at all. It was just something he knew that needed to be done as a citizen. And so he did it. And by the way, one last quote 
from the speech to the Constitutional Convention. And what writing? The more the people are discontented with the oppression of taxes, the greater need the prince has of money to distribute among his partisans and pay the troops that are to suppress all resistance and enable him to plunder at pleasure, there is scarce a king in a hundred who would not, if he could, follow the example of Pharaoh. Get first all of the people's money, then all their lands, and then make them and their children servants forever. And if you want to learn more about Benjamin Franklin, pick up Walter Isaacson's terrific book, Benjamin Franklin and American Life. It's still out there, folks, on Amazon. It doesn't have to be new to be good. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College, a great place to go and learn all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Benjamin Franklin's life. He died on this day in history in 1790. This is Our American Stories.